In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. We have a great episode lined up for you. Um, We will start off with one segment about uh, abortion, just kind of the kind of last set of topics um, that we want to make sure we talk about, like right in the in the fallout from the leaked draft uh, Supreme Court opinion. Um, And then our second segment, we'll be talking about the Department of Homeland Security's uh, disinformation board. And then for our last segment, we are going to be talking about uh, extremism in Washington and whether moderates play more of a part than extremists in doing harm rather than good. Oh, I wonder how that conversation will go. <laughs> what do you mean? We're very moderate on this show, Nathan. <laughs> no, this, this is the first time I'm hearing about this. <laughs> um, but uh, you know what I have not heard for the first time? What? The COVID numbers. Well, you've never heard these COVID numbers I've never numbers heard these before, COVID numbers. So the, yeah, buckle true, up. True, true. Yeah. <laughs> so, so far in the world, we've hit 519 million cases, which is up from 515 million last week. So that's 4 million new cases in a week, or about 570,000 new cases per day. That's up from 430,000 new cases per day last week, which is about a 33% increase in daily new cases. Um, In terms of death, we've hit 6.28 million deaths worldwide, which is up from 6.27 million the week before. So that's about 10,000 new deaths uh, in a week, which is actually down about 50% from the week before. In terms of vaccination, we're sitting at 67.2% of the world's population with at least one dose, which is up from 67.1% last week. So yet another week of just a 0.1% increase in total vaccination rate. Honestly, at this point, that might be that might be not not any more people getting vaccinated, it might just be people dying. <laughs> like it might just be like the denominator is going down at this point. <laughs> um in the US, we've hit 83.93 million cases, which is up from 83.28 million the week before. So that's 650,000 new cases in a week or about 93,000 new cases per day. Uh, This is like about 41% growth uh, in daily new cases from the week before. So that's a a lot of growth. Um, In terms of death, we're sitting at 1.025 million deaths in the U.S., which is up from 1.021 million the week before. So that's about 4,000 new deaths in a week, or about 570,000 deaths a day, which is uh, actually double uh, our the rate of deaths uh, from last week. And it's doubled for basically two weeks in a row at this point. So definitely heading in the wrong direction in terms of total deaths. I mean, we're still like well below where we were at the worst of the pandemic when we were hitting at, you know, 2,000, 2,500 deaths per day, but still we're going in the wrong direction. And in terms of vaccination in the U.S., we are sitting exactly where we were last week with 78% with one dose, 66% with two doses, and 30% boosted. 
The numbers are going the wrong way. Yeah, it's not good. That's not good news. <laughs> I thought I thought we were I thought we were getting rid of it like two pods ago. It was like. Yeah, it was like everything was going well and we were making a lot of progress and all that stuff. Well, yeah, Michael, um, let's talk about abortion. Before we get started on what we were planning on specifically talking. So in this segment, we're going to talk about some of the responses by Republicans and kind of what Republicans are going to be doing and are planning on doing in the wake of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But before we get to that, there is an amazing fact that I, I, I didn't know about last week that I just, that just, just came to my attention that we just need to talk about for a second. And that is the fact that Samuel Alito is even more of a dick than we thought he was like, so, (laughs) so in the actual leaked document, the, 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 uh, the, the leaked document that shows their plan to overturn Roe versus Wade, they have like Samuel Alito cites a guy named Matthew Hale. So he says, quote, Sir Matthew Hale likewise described abortion of a quick child who died in the womb as a great crime and a great misprison. So a quick child basically means a, a kid that could, that's like moving. Um, he also yeah. he also talks about how uh, Hale explains that, quote, um, a way in which a pre-quickening abortion can rise to the level of homicide. Hale wrote that if a physician gave a woman with child a potion to cause an abortion and the woman died, it was murder because the potion given unlawfully to destroy her child within her. So why is it a problem that he is citing Matthew Hale? Um, you mean aside from the fact that he refers to medicine as a potion, which means that it's ancient? <laughs> yeah, aside from that. Aside okay, yeah, from yeah. that. Aside yeah, from that fact. set that aside. Yeah. Um, so he was a uh, 17th century judge. And even by 17th century standards, this guy was a fucking raging misogynist. Like, the very... The very thing that Alito cites from Hale's treatise, which are uh, pleas of the crown, um, in that very same document, Hale argues that uh, that marital rape doesn't exist, like that it legally can't exist. In the same in the in the same document that Alito cited from Hale. Hale said, quote, the wife hath given up herself in this kind unto her husband, which she cannot retract. Basically, he cited a guy that thinks that husbands should be allowed to legally rape their wives. And he cited the same damn document that he used to do it. And not only that, but he also... Like he was also, he, he also sentenced two women to die for witchcraft. Hale did. He cited a literal witch hunter. He cited a literal witch hunter who, by the way, came up with this idea of spectral evidence, which was later used in the Salem witch trials. Jesus. So 
What do the Salem witch trials and Justice Alito have in common? They both cite the same fucking guy. <laughs> I like that you had to clarify that Hale was the person who sentenced people to die by witchcraft and not Alito. Uh, just, just, you know, just, <laughs> just to just be in clear. Case, just in case anybody wasn't sure. Yeah. But like, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's it's but the thing is it's it can't be that far off. There's he's literally citing this guy, and yeah. it's like so so two things. One, same point that was fucking forever ago. Yeah, like that's pre Salem witch trials. Yeah, he yeah. like yeah. His legal treatise is called "Pleas to the Crown." Yeah. Like, I mean, this so, is like so. That's the first thing. This is like Second writing thing, a this is like writing a paper on brain surgery and citing fucking Pliny the Elder. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, that's exactly what it's like, especially because of my second point, which is this is why originalism cannot be a valid jurisprudential theory. It's why it's impossible that that is a functional theory for a, of a public like ours, because it means that in order to recognize the fact that we have our that we have learned more our society has irreversibly evolved um in order to recognize that in our laws and our rights we have to pass continual constitutional amendments mm -hmm. rather than recognizing that what we know today is a better affirmation of the principles that we established previously Good yeah. principles, which we can now dedicate, like, you know, have laws that respect more fully. Yeah. Like, it would basically mean that every time we wanted to do, like, any recognition of, uh, like, the fact that the past was not a perfect example of everything that the law should be, we need to pass, like, in terms of rights, we need to pass a constitutional amendment. It's totally untenable. Yeah. Yeah, like, because society develops. We develop both morally and scientifically. For example, scientifically, we eventually come to the point where we recognize that witchcraft doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, oh my God. So so anyways, we, we, we just had to start with that gem. Yeah. Um, transitioning from that, let's talk about the whole Republican response and what they're going to be doing in the States and on a federal yeah. level in the yeah. days and months and years to come. Yeah. Let's start off with like the federal question. Cause this has gotten a lot of attention and like airtime yeah. because like right after this came out, um, when asked about a potential federal abortion ban in an interview with USA today, McConnell, uh, said basically um, that if the draft opinion, you know, was a final ruling, it's, he said, quote, if the leaked opinion became the final opinion, legislative bodies, not only at the state level, but at the federal level, certainly could legislate in that area. Um, yeah. And it went on to say that it was that it was, quote, the point that it should be resolved one way or the other in the legislative process. So, yeah, it's possible. Um, and so, like. A couple things, you know, on the one hand, 
this may be a very good example of, you know, give an inch, or in this case, give a mile, take a hundred miles, like scenario where the court has said, like, leave it up to the states, leave it up to the legislative process, which was like, you know, that's all we want. We just want the states to be able to make their choices. And then immediately Republicans going, actually, it's not that we want states to be able to, it's not about state rights. It's never about state rights, right? Slavery was never about states' rights. It was about wanting to own people. And in this case, it's not about states' rights. It's about wanting to ban abortion. Um, And so that's really clear. Um, So, but the second thing is that really most likely not going to happen. Yeah. Jen Psaki said that it was, quote, I think we're at serious risk um, of this federal abortion ban. And like, that's yeah. probably fear mongering. It's not going to happen. But yeah. but here's but here's the weird thing about it, though. I don't know what the hell Mitch McConnell's thinking, because he's smart enough to know that this is super unpopular. Yeah. Like and also he doesn't give a shit about it. He definitely yeah. doesn't give a shit about it. The, he he doesn't care about abortion. There's no way he cares about abortion. Um, so if he knows that it's not going to happen, and he also knows that it's unpopular, then why would you say it in the first place? Because, look, you and I are, you know, we hear that, and we're smart enough to know, well, we know that he's not going to take away the filibuster in order to do that because he loves the filibuster. That's his best tool. So he yeah. would never get rid of the filibuster to do this. And he's said as much. Yeah, and he said as much, which means it's not going to happen. Yeah. You're not going to get 60 votes to do a federal abortion ban. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so if it's not going to happen and the fear of it happening whether it's going to happen or not, could potentially mobilize your opposition. Why would you do that? Yeah. I mean, I know that there are a lot of single-issue voters that... There are a lot more single-issue voters that are anti-abortion than are pro-abortion or pro-choice, but I just... I don't get what the strategy is here. Yeah. I I totally agree with you. Because, like, on the one hand, my first thought was, like, okay, well, he's trying to in like the weakest possible terms appease like the, the anti-abortion like fanatics. Yeah. But to your point, it's like this particular, I mean this, even this particular like statement is too easily blown out of proportion. It's too easily made into a really like powerful tool for Democrats. And to your point, like, yeah, they need 60 votes in the Senate. They currently might have like 48 because two Republicans would defect in Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, even though they're not in support of the Women's Reproductive Act. um, They're still like pro-choice. And so banning that would not really work. So they'd have to pick up 12 votes in the Senate in midterms. Yeah. But even more because... Which is not going to happen. Which is not going to happen. But even more because Biden would is still in office for another two years after the midterms yeah. and would definitely veto it. So they would need a veto-proof majority, so two-thirds of the Senate, and they'd have to have two-thirds of the House in order to even come close to this. Yeah. And to your point, there's no way they're smashing the filibuster in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, he said that, quote, that he would, quote, never support smashing the legislative filibuster on this or any other issue. Well, um, except, of course, Supreme Court nominees. 
Well, yes, of course. Well, <laughs> he's very absolute, except when it's not convenient to be absolute. That's yeah. the McConnell, the McConnell uh, two-facedness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's like, uh, so like, and even if they they like you know did away with the filibuster for this, it would, they would still face the Biden problem. So like, in 2022, 2023, even if the Republicans like took a bunch of seats, which they could totally do. You know, there's like uh, a fair amount of like, like headwinds for Democrats, not only being the midterms when they're the party in power, which traditionally loses seats. um, But also the fact that with redistricting, there's been a general shift from swing districts to either to like a slightly there are a couple more like lean democrat districts but there are 12 more uh strong republican districts than there were before redistricting according to a new york times analysis so there's that headwind as well but even with all of this like it's not gonna happen yeah we should we should fear 2022 because this does signal that like this is something that they would be open to so we got to work honestly, our asses off. But honestly, yeah. I think there's a good chance that even if, even if, because because I think a reasonable argument could be made that if we overturn the filibuster, use it to pass a, use it to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, or at least some version of it. Yeah. That that then leaves the door open to where if Republicans gain power, that they can potentially pass a full out ban. I still think that that's unlikely, though, because historically, just even looking at the Trump administration, it has been a lot harder for legislatively to overturn Democratic progress than it <laughs> yeah. is for than, than it is to, um, you know, than, than it is to make it in the first place. I mean, look at the Affordable Care Act. All right. They weren't able to pass that, and they did that through reconciliation. So they they didn't even need to do the, um, like they they didn't even need to do the filibuster in that Mm -hmm. situation. They're yeah. They just they just didn't have the votes, and I think that once you pass that, like maybe Collins and Murkowski aren't going to be votes for it. I don't think they would be votes against uh, votes for overturning it though. Yeah, I mean they have their own. They Lisa and or Murkowski and Collins have their own like reproductive rights. Yeah. And, and if you, and also in order to do that, the Republicans would need to have the white house. They would need to have the Senate and they would have to need to have enough votes in the Senate so that Collins and Murkowski would not be able to do it or potentially other more, you know, I say this relatively moderate, Republicans uh, might not do it. And I just, I think that's far less likely to happen. And the, I would say that the risk is worth it because at the end of the day, and this kind of goes into what we're going to be talking about next, at the end of the day, according to the Guttmacher Institute, 26 states are certain or likely to ban abortion without Roe versus Wade. Yeah. And it's, and there are varying degrees depending on which states we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, for example, 
looking at looking at things sort of uh, state by state. So we talked about last week how 13 states have trigger bans, right? Which means that they will automatically restrict abortion if Roe is overturned. Um, and uh, this this is according to VOA News. On top of that, there are also other states that have laws in place that could be brought into effect in short or order to restrict yeah. to restrict abortion. In some cases, it might be a pre pre row ban that they can start mm-hmm. enforcing again. In yep. some cases, they might have legislation that they're already proposing that they're already set to pass. Yeah. And there are varying degrees of that. So yeah. the day after the leak, um, Oklahoma's governor signed a law that was basically the Texas six week abortion ban. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, both Texas and Oklahoma, as well as Arizona, Florida, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, South Dakota, and Tennessee have no exemptions for pregnancies resulting from rape or incest. Yeah. That's it. That is such a common thing across these abortion restrictions, which I just don't get. Like, yeah. So many of these restrictions have just no exception. The only exception that's common, but not even present everywhere, is an exception for yeah. like danger to the life of the pregnant person. Yeah. That's it. And another thing that I think is really interesting, Mississippi Governor uh, Tate Reeves was mm-hmm. on CNN. He was being interviewed by Jake Tapper. And Jake Tapper brought up the issue of, of rape and incest. And listen to this defense, and honestly, this could almost be worthy of a Dershowitz bag. Mm-hmm. So, and I want to see if I want to see if you can catch why, Michael. Okay. <laughs> so he says, "Quote: When you look at the number of those that actually involve incest, it's less than one percent. And if we need to have that conversation in the future about potential exceptions in the trigger law, we can certainly do that." Hmm. Why is that so hilarious, Michael? Uh, well, could it be the fact that almost like 90% of abortions happen within 13 weeks and only a tiny, tiny portion happen in late term, which is the main thing that these people are trying to prevent? Exactly. <laughs> the entire... Yeah, the exact same logic, but in exactly. reverse. And... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, so apparently, and, and he's only talking about incest there. He's not even talking about like rape in general. He's, he's just yeah. talking about incest. It's but... like, also, if they're that tiny, just have the exceptions. Yeah. You know, like if it's if it's 1% and you ex- you've said explicitly you don't care about the 1%, just make an exception so that people yeah. who are raped can have an abortion. Yeah. It's not that much to ask. Yeah. And also, trigger bans in Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, North Dakota, Tennessee, and Utah will make it a felony to provide abortion services. Yeah. A felony. Like, yeah. on top of that, there was a law proposed in Louisiana. Mm, the Louisiana would, one is the most extreme that I've seen. Yeah. Even their governor, even the Louisiana governor is like, okay, that's that's too much. Like, yeah. he is a Democrat, but he's he's a very heavily pro-life Democrat. Uh, even, even, but even that's too, that's too far for him. But unfortunately, they... They might have the votes in order to override a veto. Mm -hmm. So Louisiana 
is planning on basically trying to classify abortion as murder and making anyone involved in the process, including the pres- the pregnant woman, liable for for abor- for for murder. Yeah. From the moment of fertilization. That's yeah. the other huge change here is that so one it it's potentially holding the present pregnant person liable for, you know, a felony which is something that most other states don't do. It's it's mostly abortion providers who they're targeting. But two, it's from the moment of fertilization. And some experts believe that this could, you know, mean that uh, in vitro fertilization and some emergency contraception also would potentially fall under this criminal charge. Yeah. And here's another crazy thing. So... Uh, Elizabeth Nash, who is a state policy expert in the Guttmacher Institute, um, was, had an email exchange with VOA and she said, quote, this new legislation goes even further by establishing abortion as murder and potentially restricting self-managed abortions. Several states already define pregnancy starting at conception in their abortion laws and throughout their fetal homicide status. The ban could affect the provisions of infertility services. <laughs> and in this political climate that is so hostile to reproductive health, Louisiana, um, along with other states, may look to limit access to contraceptive services. So the ban could affect the provision of infertility services, IVF. People that want kids yep. and are infertile and are trying to have kids could be limited in their ability to have kids because of these laws, because of this fucking bullshit ruling. People who want kids might not be able to have them because of this. Yeah. You cannot tell me, you can't even tell me this is pro birth at this point. Mm -hmm. You're just controlling people's lives. You're just controlling people's health. So the other thing about so many of these laws is that the penalties associated with them are extremely severe. So in Texas, you know, the one that already has a six-week abortion ban, currently in effect, while Roe is still good law, um, so Texas has a trigger law, which would... uh, has the potential to imprison doctors who provide abortions for life. Five states would imprison doctors for up to 15 years. And a number of states have lesser penalties like five, 10. So we're talking about multi-year penalties up to life in prison already in already that has passed is in the law that would be enacted once Roe is officially overruled yeah it's crazy and like mississippi which originally had a 15 week law and now and and then has this trigger law which would ban abortion in all cases except for you know if it puts the life of the pregnant person at risk um they would face like people in that state would face up to 10 years in prison like molt like so many of these states have very long prison terms specifically for for uh, these medical providers and multiple states are trying are investigating ways that they might be able to extend their abortion restrictions beyond 
their state borders to yeah. p- to basically try to criminalize abortion in other states you know uh, criminalize the practice of traveling to other states to get an abortion. Yeah, Texas and Missouri have actually already proposed plans that would make it possible for their residents to sue out-of-state doctors who perform abortions on state residents. Yeah. And as we already know, residents, like citizens suing people, apparently is like, for for things that are defined as crimes, is like apparently you know, the, the Supreme Court just can't even see that. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's like, it's mind-blowing. We, like, we have been, the the women and pregnant, like, people in this country that can become pregnant have been entirely abandoned. Yeah. By the Supreme Court. Yeah. It's like, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, this is why the state's rights argument is such bullshit. Yeah. They used it to defend slavery. They used it to defend segregation. They used it to argue against marriage equality. Mm-hmm. The states cannot fucking be trusted yeah. to prioritize individual rights. Yeah. So, look, states' rights, to an extent, make sense. It makes sense for there to be certain things that are up to the states to regulate because states know their citizens the best. They might have different terrain. They might have different, just different needs based on who happens to be in the states. So if you want to argue for states' rights in that regard, makes sense. But as soon as you start putting states' rights above individual rights, you should no longer be taken intellectually seriously. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Seriously. You've told on yourself at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And the other crazy thing about these. So one of the one of the big downsides about the incredible geographic um, like the incredible like geographic correlation of political opinion in the United States is that many of these states which severely restrict abortion are clustered together. They're yeah. like in the south. There's like a group in the south you know, basically across the whole South of the United States, there's a group in the Midwest, all of this stuff, which means that the primary method that people have been using to try to receive reproductive care, including abortions at clinics has been to go out of state to an, an adjacent state, which is, you know, which has these services available because many states will continue to have these services available. They will protect them um, and they might even protect them more strongly. And so, but the problem is now someone who previously faced a six or seven hour drive to get out of Texas will face even longer drives. You know, these people will be in blocks of the country where they have to travel sometimes hundreds of miles to receive care. And you know what that that leads to? That leads to late-term abortions. (laughs) That's the fucking crazy shit about all this. It's like, it's like we've been saying it. Like, if you don't want people, like, you know, misprisoning, quicken babies, (laughs) like, then then you have to give them abortion stand on every corner. All right, exactly. Like, have it, have it be a stand. Have it be like a food truck. You know. Yeah. Like, put them on every corner. You really don't like late-term abortions? That's how you prevent them. Yeah. 
And uh, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about with you, Michael, that I actually I want to hear your thoughts on. So there have been a number of instances of protesters showing up outside of the houses of justices, so like like Kavanaugh, mm, yeah. in order to protest. Yeah. And according to all reports at this point, they've stayed peaceful. There's been no property damage. There's been no assaults on his person. So what are your thoughts on that, Michael? Honestly, my thought is, why would I have thoughts on that? <laughs> like, <laughs> like people are going outside and, and assembling as are their rights yeah. to try to get the attention of public servants. Yeah. I don't, ima- I, I, I can't, I can't even imagine a scenario where I'd have a problem with that. According to McConnell, you know? it's uh, it's mob bullying. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the nine like most powerful people yeah. <laughs> in the United States, the people that can, the people that can tell the president, nah, you can't do that. Yeah. The people that can just totally invalidate laws yeah. or that do have the power to make new ones. Not that they should, but they do have that power. Yeah. Those nine most powerful people are really sad that people are bullying them with science. Yeah. I mean the, the whole argument that Republicans are making about that, I mean, first off, bullying is inherently a power struggle. It's what people with more power do to people with less power. Yeah. When people with less power do it to people with more power, that's just called protesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. No, 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 Nathan. Uh, Counter revolutionaries, you know, overcoming fascist dictators. Those people are bullying the dictators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I guess... Uh, I guess I don't know. My, I think that Samantha B had the best response to that, which was basically, if they don't like it, they can just move to another state. <laughs> and now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, a good actually. So Nathan, why do we do good actuallys? Well, Michael, we do good, actually, because the world sucks. Yeah, it sucks. More and more each day, it seems. Especially when I forget the difference between good, actually, and tips for good. Mm -hmm. But luckily, no one knows because I edited that out. Yeah, nice. Good save. (laughs) But sometimes, if you look around really, really closely, Mm -hmm. you find that good, actually, is all around us. In subtle ways. Yeah. Yeah, you can feel it in your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. I love that movie, too. Yeah. I, did you know yeah. that Kira Knightley was like 18 or 19 when she when she did that movie? That's crazy. Yeah. Man. What have you done with also, your life? Also, <laughs> how crazy, how weird is that scene where he's just like standing out with like the yeah. boomba? Like, no, it is, it is my biggest weird. problem with that scene is no one would believe that a tiny boombox with the recording of Silent Light is carolers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially, uh, anyway. especially at that time. I mean, yeah. it was so obvious. Yeah. Uh, anyways, so... <laughs> so what is our good actually this week, Nathan? Our good actually this week is actually something that happened personally uh, to me. So I live in a fairly low-income neighborhood. Um, a, a low-income apartment complex. And 
you know, a lot of people around here struggle. And there was actually, what was interesting, this actually happened while Michael and I were having our planning session. Like mm -hmm. when we were, we were talking to each other about planning the pod. Um, there are these people from the, uh, it's, it's called the, um, the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank uh, that, that is in, in my area. Um, and they were just handing out fresh produce, like boxes and boxes of fresh produce to all of the neighbors uh, and to, 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 so cool. to, to everyone in the area. Now, oftentimes food banks can be a little bit wasteful and problematic mm -hmm. because the problem is what a lot of people do is they just kind of use it as an excuse to clean out a bunch of old expired food from their pantry. Yeah. And they just sure. send it to the food bank. Um, or sometimes what they will do is they will, like they will go out and shop for food and then donate that, which also isn't as effective. In fact, the best way to help a food bank is just to give them money because yeah. oftentimes they're able to negotiate better prices for their items in order to give to people. So, you know, little tip for good there. A little as well. tip for good buried in the good, actually. Um, but this was straight up fresh produce. Uh, and I mean, I was, I was reluctant because we're, we're a little bit better off than some of the people in this neighborhood. But I, I also realized like, I'm also an instructor and I'm about to go into, I'm about to go into summer. Mm -hmm. I don't have an income during the summer. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot of expenses coming up, like with, in terms of medical bills for cancer and all that. Cause you know, I had cancer. Yeah. Um, and I realized this actually really helps us. And these are people that are taking time out of their day to give like not even bad food, like fresh food. We, we, we made dinner with it yesterday. That's awesome. Um, like fresh produce to people and just hand out these full boxes of it yeah. and save quite a bit of money on groceries. So I just, that is, that is so nice to see. I have felt so disheartened by humanity this week and it was just so nice to have a reminder that sometimes good actually is all around us. Recently, Secretary of Homeland Security, Alexander Mayorkas, was testifying before Congress, and during questioning, he mentioned that staff within the Department of Homeland Security are, quote, leading uh, a just recently constituted misinformation, disinformation governance board. Ironically, that sloppy announcement about the board has opened up the door to a lot of misinformation and disinformation about it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, really weird. So, uh, you know, we wanted to talk about what this board is. Like, we are skeptical of mm -hmm. activities by the government that could interfere with yeah. free expression and free speech. Um, Not and just we the found, government. And yeah, that's fair. Not just the government. That's a really good point. Um and we found weird, you know, there was weird, um, you know, people on that kind of like echoing those same worries yeah. um, before we like really dug into this at all. And so like we decided yeah. it would be a good thing to kind of figure yeah. out and discuss. And when I was looking at this, it was kind of a roller coaster for me. Yeah. Because I went from uh, to uh, to uh. Yeah. 
<laughs> so that that there there that's uh, that's my preview of main points for this. Segment. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. So initially, like initially, so one thing that Republican lawmakers have been saying is like comparing it to like the Ministry of Truth yeah. from 1984, which is really funny as I was reading about this because that was your reaction as well when i yeah. when i mentioned that we might want to talk about this subject yeah. at the time i characterized it as a misinformation board um and your reaction was well that just sounds like the ministry of truth yeah. and i think like the distinction between misinformation and disinformation could be important right like misinformation yeah, is just important. incorrect and misleading information disinformation is coordinating yeah. like shared deliberate false information to deceive um, or mislead often organized by state actors or organizations. Yeah. So my biggest concern with this, and, and I'm going to go ahead and use the same example that I use every single time, but it's going to mm. be important for later. All right. So hold on to this example. The example that I always give in terms of regulating misinformation and disinformation for that matter yeah. is the Iraq war. Mm. All right. During the time of the Iraq war, it was established fact within the mainstream media of the United States. And of course, in the, in the line that was given by the U S government, that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And there was also, there was also a bunch of information that was being delivered to us, a bunch of disinformation being delivered to us from the government saying that, uh, Saddam Hussein was involved in nine 11. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that was disinformation. It was it was incorrect and it was purposely m incorrect yeah, being yeah. being used by the Bush administration or in order to lie us into the war. But at the time, even though. Even though the war started months after the investigation by the U.N. that turned up no weapons of mass destruction in the United States media, it was established fact that there were weapons of mass destruction. So yeah. people who were saying at the time that there are no weapons of mass destruction, that this is all bullshit, could have very easily have fallen under the category of spreading misinformation or spreading disinformation. Yeah. So when you have a corporation or when you have a, a government step in and try to decide what is true and what is not true. It might sound like an extreme example to say that, you know, there's a, a ministry of truth, but we know that sometimes the official line is just not true. Yeah. And you have to have those dissenting voices in order to challenge them. Yeah, absolutely. We also know that in the name of security, national security, like, like, Things that previously were totally established, unalienable, you know, rights yeah. have been violated. Yeah. And like the Patriot Act, the Patriot Act, exactly from the same era is like that, that was a bipartisan partisan infringement on the right of privacy. Yeah. Blatantly unconstitutional, still in force today and has justified some of like the worst infringements on straight up um, torture, privacy and yeah. And due process. Um like, yeah, some of the worst examples in, in our domestic, yeah, uh, modern, <laughs> you got to really qualify that yeah. <laughs> domestic <laughs> modern <laughs> history, um, 
in like the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah. We'll just so, really qualify that further. But like, so then, then the big yeah. question then arises, how are they planning on doing this? Exactly. It, yeah, that's the thing. Because how, like what this board is, what its mandate is, and how it's supposed to go about it are like all really important questions to help, you know, because on the other hand, on the other hand, disinformation and misinformation is a growing area of um, like difficulty internationally. Like disinformation in the U.S. is an actively destabilizing force, which contributed to an attempted overthrow of the U.S. government. Like this is this is not and, and is a risk yeah. that has been warned about domestic and international disinformation is a risk that has been warned about by the Department of Homeland Security um, more and more. And so like. You know, on the one hand, we've got to balance these rights, which are yeah. really important and critical. And on the other hand, balance security. And we know that we've been bad at balancing those things before. So how yeah. this board is set up and what it's supposed to do de in a detailed way is really important. Yeah. Being to be clear, being a dissonant to the official line does not always mean you're right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like the official, I mean, the official line is that vaccines work. They do work. The official yeah. line is that the election wasn't stolen. It wasn't fucking stolen. Yeah. Um, the official line is that uh, Bill Gates is not an evil alien frog dude who's trying to inject you with a chip that, I don't allows, know. It allows you to microwave pizza bagels, microchips. That's what those are, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 I mean, so being a dissonant doesn't always mean that you're right. But, and, and that, and that does add into the layer of, to Michael's point, disinformation is a major problem and we don't want to pretend that it's not, but you do still have to ask the question of what are they doing? And also just who decides what the truth is. Yeah. And whether that's even their purview, like that's a big yeah. part whether of this that's question. Even their purview. I think that's what a lot of. Republic the the conclusion that a lot of Republicans jumped to yeah. was that this is just going to be a board to like try to impose the liberal agenda, and they intentionally <laughs> jumped that to that point because it's like, yeah, you know, because they're fear mongering because they have their own disinformation campaigns yeah. at the Trump yeah they right. don't their criticisms are not honest and they never have been no yeah and they don't really care like about ours. first We're the honest. first amendment <laughs> yeah they don't, they don't really care about like free speech yeah, they don't care like they just stuff. care about the right of their people to be able to post on twitter yeah but, they're, they're, they're the party that passes anti-protest laws like they don't give a shit exactly about this. exactly so based on what they're saying on their own website what it looks like this is going to be is more so an information campaign rather than enforcement, mm -hmm. like rather than we're coming in here and we're going to take down disinformation or we're going to try to regulate information based on what they're saying on their website. It's actually going to be more focused on trying to combat disinformation by coordinating with businesses or social media or maybe local governments in order to distribute the debunking of that misinformation. And so they cited examples of this in the past. So like um, they cited how uh, in 2012 during the Hurricane Sandy, during Hurricane Sandy, um, there was some false information that was going around about the safety of drinking water, the location of shelters. Um, 
and in order to protect and serve the, uh, the, 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 the hurricanes victims, um, FEMA actually had to build an internal capacity that would allow them to respond to that information, to, to respond to misinformation and make sure that proper information was put out there in order to protect survivors. And that yeah. sounds great. That sounds yeah. great to me. Um, you know, and uh, the the cybersecurity infrastructure agency apparently had also at one point worked with some private sector stakeholders to try to mitigate the risk of disinformation, um, which was worked that w was made even more relevant during the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But mm -hmm. it was it was more so about being a distributor of correct information, what they yep. say is correct information, than it is about trying to limit what information is out there. Yeah. And when I read that, my thought is that sounds like um, libertarian paternalism. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, to, to put some specifics to that point. So libertarian paternalism is like, we're going to allow people to like, have all the their ability to make all their own choices and all these stuff all this stuff but we're going to like provide them with the right information and maybe nudge them slightly into like making good choices and so like this yeah. would would fulfill that with being like you know if if truly the best antidote for bad information for falsehoods is more discussion more light more yeah. like accurate information then we'll just put out that accurate information and we'll let it kind of speak for itself yeah, which basically um, just means like just more voices. Yeah, which when I first read that, I was thinking that's yeah. not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, and the and the fact sheet put out by so following the bungled release of this this board, they put out like a fact sheet about the uh, disinformation board in order to kind of you know clean up the mess that they'd made announcing it, and it said quote. The department is deeply committed to doing all of its work in a way that protects America's freedom of speech, civil rights, civil liberties, and privacy. In fact, the Disinformation Governance Board is an internal working group that was established with the explicit goal of ensuring these protections are appropriately incorporated across DHS's disinformation-related work and that rigorous safeguards are in place. The working group also seeks to coordinate the department's engagements on this subject with other federal agencies and a diverse range of external stakeholders. So basically saying like, and, and, and you know, Mayorka said this in a, in a shorter way, basically saying, quote, it is going to establish what should have been established years ago, standards, definitions, guidelines, and policies. Because they're right. What, one thing, they, the point they keep making is that the Department of Homeland Security has been combating disinformation in various forms, as Nathan pointed out in a couple of examples, for many years. Like, this is something that they already actively do in many ways. And so the disinformation board, they're claiming, is, like, really meant to define some of these terms, build some policies and guidance around it to help prevent disinformation, ongoing disinformation activities from going overboard. Yeah. And then I discovered one fact that completely ruined it for me. <laughs> Great. Just 100% just cannonballed the whole fucking thing for me. So I'm... Um, one of the things that Michael pointed out is they, they are trying to prioritize the protecting of free speech. All right. So it's 
about protecting free speech and fundamental rights. And in order to lead that effort, they are having uh, HSAC co-chair uh, Jamie Gorlick and HSAC member Michael Chertoff. So th they are both going to be leading that, that effort. So who are those people? So Mr. So uh, Ms. Gorlick is a former U.S. Deputy, Deputy Attorney General. Okay, sounds wonderful. Uh, Mr. Chertoff was Secretary of Homeland Security during President George W. Bush's administration. Hmm. And I saw that, and I was like, huh. Wasn't that the bad time? <laughs> let me, let's, well, let's, let, let's look into him just a little bit more. And so he, so sure enough, uh, he was the Secretary of Homeland Security dur during George W. Bush's administration, which already should raise red flags. Because remember what we talked about in terms of the torture papers during the, uh, during the justification for the Iraq war. This is why I talked about that earlier. Um, the Bush administration was purposely instructing the people at Guantanamo Bay, the interrogators, to torture specific information out of prisoners that they could then use as evidence to justify their invasion of Iraq. But Actually they knew for making a fact, disinformation. Exactly. Creating disinformation. Purposely creating disinformation by beating it out of them, by waterboarding them. And this guy, this guy was the, uh, was the secretary of Homeland security during, during the George W. Bush administration. And uh, before he was the secretary of Homeland security, actually during his confirmation hearing, there were concerns about the fact that at the time he was actually a part of the justice department. Specifically, he was the head of the department's criminal division which apparently at the time had been working with the Department of Homeland Security on those interrogations. So there was actually, so uh, one senator during this confirmation he hearing wrote, quote, FBI personnel communicated with the Justice Department, including the criminal division, regarding their concerns based on the contents of the document. We believe many of the reinforced events occurred during the tenure of Judge Chertoff. The... Mm. The, the events that they're talking about are the events of torture. Now, this was in 2005, before he was even the Secretary uh, of, of Homeland Security. And then mm. afterwards, after he was already the Secretary of Homeland Security, um, there was, and after information had come out about the torture that was used at Guantanamo Bay, there was a trial that was being held against uh, six of the people that had that were alleged masterminds behind 9/11. There was a trial that was going to be held, which he kept insisting over and over again that it was going to be a fair trial, that they're receiving proper due process. But the information that was being submitted as evidence was information that was tortured out of them. When he was asked if the evidence extracted from the waterboarding would be used, his response was. The judges will decide what's reasonably admissible and what's not admissible. So mm. this guy was complicit in torturing, later justified it. In that torture was used actively to spread disinformation, to lie us into a war. So if this guy is in charge of, and again, let me read this, let me read this again, is in charge of 
protecting fundamental rights and fighting against disinformation, I'm sorry, this entire committee is bullshit. Yeah. If this guy is 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 leading this, if this guy is leading this uh this this push, this group, I'm sorry. I don't trust it. All right. He's a he, he's a war criminal and he is an active creator of disinformation. Yeah. Yeah, that's really upsetting and frustrating. I did not I had not found that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like pretty much put at ease by a lot of this. I was like talking I said, points, like which I, makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. well like like I said, I mean it's my reaction was huh and then it was huh and then it was huh. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's a, that's about a fair that's a fair assessment of the trajectory. And the, the and the annoying thing is the reason why he's on there is because they're trying to look bipartisan. Yeah. Can you? F- yeah, they're ruining the purpose of the. I understand the board. that it's difficult to find a Republican who's not a war criminal, but please try. <laughs> yeah. So like, so like, you know, I was lulled into a seemingly false sense of security by a lot of these things. Like, yeah, you know, it's being led by a disinformation like expert who's written a lot about the topic, has consulted a lot internationally yeah. about the topic. Um, and and even the ACLU, so Ben Wisner, director yeah. of speech, privacy, and technology project at the ACLU, said, quote, the board can't have real enforcement authority because it would be unconstitutional. The government can't say to any online entity, that's not truthful, you have to take it down because it would violate the First Amendment. And that's true, um, but there's a lot of distance between no control and absolute control, right? There's a lot of distance between those two things, between chilling effect on speech and influence on speech and disinformation spread by our own government, unfortunately. Um, there's just, yeah, there's just a lot that could be going on here. And I guess, I guess, like, maybe this is a consolation, maybe not, is that, like, it's pretty clear that Government, the government agencies have been working on the disinformation project a lot independently already. And so, like, would this make it worse even if it went bad is a question, I guess. But it's possible, right? It's possible that it would make it worse because it'd be more coordinated, right? Like, the whole, the whole, a big important part of, you know, controlling information is being able to coordinate it. And so coordinating across agencies could be part of that. I, I don't know. Yeah. To, like, I am glad that someone is studying this issue. Yeah. I'm glad that some that someone is um, trying ostensibly to create guidelines that prevent the gov- government from overstepping. I just don't know if that's like, I don't, I just don't have full confidence that that's actually what this board will yeah. end up doing. But I mean, to the point, like, they don't have enforcement authority, right? They're not yeah. a task force that will like change laws or a, or, or administration or anything. They will advise, but to the degree that their advice is tainted and to the degree that their advice takes force, it could be a problem. I don't think it's, I don't think it's the ministry of truth end of free speech, like yeah. level rhetoric, like the Republicans are putting out. Um, but you know, to your point, Nathan, like, that doesn't mean that it's going to be good. Yeah. yeah, if they're if they're in charge of trying to like s- correct disinformation, 
I'm sorry. As long as uh, Chertov is in there, it's it's tainted. So now it's time for our favorite segment, Ass Hat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our Ass Hat this week? Well, Michael, our Ass Hat this week is former governor of Arkansas, Mike Huckabee. Mikey oh, Huck, man. come on down. You know, you don't hear that much about Mike Huckabee you these don't. days. He's kind of yeah. He's receded into the background, like a like a like a flow of toxic sewage sludge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if there's anything that's made the world a little bit better, it's mm. the fact that we've been hearing less from from, from Mike Huckabee. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, what did Mike Huckabee do to get on our show? So y'all might have heard about that, that that leaked document saying that the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe versus Wade. We yeah, might I think have I heard it something about it. Yeah, yeah, we mentioned it a little bit. Um so and you know how last week the fact that Mitch McConnell was focusing on the leak and saying that that like destroyed the integrity of the court, we found that so stupid that we gave him a Dershowitz bag award for it. Mm-hmm. So that has now become the standard talking point for the entire Republican party. Naturally. Yeah, of course. And we actually, Michael it's, and I actually, it's, it's actually, uh, it's actually a, a, uh, a law of physics at this point. <laughs> yeah. You event occurs, uh, causally causes Republicans to take an absurd one Republican to take an absurd position. We'll call that the McConnell position. You know, it's a variable. We'll just, you know, and that causes all Republicans to rally around the most absurd possible position, which then becomes the normal position, moving the whole discourse further to the right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, apparently Mike Huckabee doesn't listen to our show, though. Oh. Which, well, which that's is on sad. Him. That's his bad. Because I, I mean, I think he'd like it. <laughs> he might. I mean, to be fair, like, who is talking about Mike Huckabee? We should tag him in this because, like, he'll probably be like, oh, man, I haven't been tagged in so long. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, anyways, Mike Huckabee was talking about the leak, and he was actually responding to this other guy who who was on, like, both Mike Huckabee and this other guy named uh, Arnie uh, Fleischer, I think that's how you say his name, Mm -hmm. um, who was referring to the leak as... An insurrection. <laughs> and Mike Huckabee responded to that by saying, quote, This is an insurrection, not by some guy from some state who got hot under the collar and went to D.C. and got overheated at a rally. This is an insurrection by a person who was paid for by the taxpayers, who has a duty under his particular job and employment to keep his mouth shut, and he didn't do it. So it's an egregious form, if you will, of insurrection. I hope that everybody will use that term. Because if what happened January 6th was an insurrection, this absolutely is an insurrection. God, that's fucking awesome. That's so fucking funny. Oh my God. It's like, all right, guys, we've decided our best possible path forward after January 6th is to trivialize insurrections. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and and the thing is... If cake without icing... Isn't an insurrection? <laughs> then I don't know what is. <laughs> it's like two. Okay, to be clear, people died during the January sixth insurrection. Yeah, our uh, our we capital learned building something a little. We learned was something invaded. A, yeah, our capital building was invaded. We learned about a court case 
a few months before we were supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> 400 plus people have been charged with crimes because of yes. the actual insurrection. Leaking a Supreme Court opinion is not a crime. And the thing is, we 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 debated making this a Dershowitz bagger and asshat. Mm-hmm. And like, if he hadn't brought up January 6th, we probably would have said Dershowitz bag. Yeah. But the fact that he does means that he knows what he's trying to do. He knows yeah. what he's saying. And that is just so shitty. At this yeah. point, he's very clearly telling on himself mm-hmm. because he is establishing that the threshold for what constitutes an insurrection for a leftist versus a right winger is so different in his mind that a, a right winger can actually kill people and storm a building and it doesn't rise to that threshold. But a left winger, which, by the way, we don't even know if this was a left winger. Yeah, we don't exactly. know who it was. We don't it know could have was. been a right yeah. winger. But like assuming it's a left winger publishes a document that was going to be public in a few months anyway, mm-hmm. that that does rise to the level of insurrection, yeah. Yeah. or at least that they are equally so. Nathan, <laughs> if attaching official piece of government uh, discourse to an email and sending that email, if that's not an insurrection, I don't know what is. <laughs> God. He's yeah. telling on himself. He is telling you, hey, I am a partisan hack and you should never take anything I say intellectually seriously. Yeah. And luckily, for the first and only time, we will listen to Mike Huckabee. Yes. So congratulations, <laughs> former governor of Arkansas, Mike Huckabee, for being our Ass Hat of, of the, the Week. week. <laughs> so for our third segment, we are talking about extremism in Washington, D.C., uh, specifically, Ooh. yeah, yeah, pretty. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a little flashy, you know. Ooga booga. Yeah. In Washington, D.C., we're talking about extremism. Yeah, maybe we'll be becoming <laughs> a yelling podcast, one of those where we just have to yell for an hour and a half straight, and then we come down off of our incredible, like, you know, drug fueled high, and oh, we I, talk about normal stuff. I don't know what you're talking. I never yell. Yeah, that's true. You're a pretty quiet fellow. <laughs> so we're talking about extremism in Washington and not just the kind that's on this podcast. Um, and 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 I think we're making the case essentially that um, the extremists are not the people that we have to be worried about Yeah. at this point. Yeah. So one of the things that is often perpetuated and to be honest, we probably do it too, to an extent, is that the biggest problem in Washington, D.C. are the extremists. Like, even even if we're talking about from a left-wing point of view, who are, you know, to, to us, like the people that are referred to as extreme left or radical left, to us, they're the good guys, and mm-hmm. the real bad guys are the radical right. So that is an oversimplification, yeah. Now, I do I do want to make something very clear. When I talk about extremist right-wing people specifically in in Congress, I'm grading on a bell curve. Mhm. And it is a bell curve that is very very right-wing. If I was grading on the world, 
then the Republicans would be off the charts conservative and the people that we consider to be extremely right wing to call them conservative would be like calling the sun reasonably hot. <laughs> yeah. But we're grading on a scale in relation in a relationship to the Republican Party in the United States as it exists right now. So one of the things that we often do is we focus a lot more attention and segments on people like Marjorie Taylor Greene yeah. or Lauren Boebert. And I want to make one thing clear. They are complete dumbasses, yeah. complete idiots. Their, their, their views are atrocious. Their ideas are atrocious. They're not smart people. They're not serious people. And if their version of America were to be implemented, that would be terrible. That would be awful. But at the same time, they're not the ones with all the power. Mm -hmm. They really do not have that much power yeah. in terms of the Republican Party. They really don't. The people that have the real power are the people that we consider to be the establishment Republicans. People like Mitch McConnell, like Kevin McCarthy. And yes, there are some ways in which people that would be considered more establishment Republicans have shifted further and further to the right in ways that we could classify as extreme or radical. Yeah. But at the yeah, end of shifting the, the Overton window of like what's expected of Republicans. Exactly. But at the end of the day, a lot of those are changes in rhetoric, hmm. but not necessarily implemented policy. So let's focus on policy for just a second. I'm not saying that rhetoric means nothing, but these are people in Congress. These are representatives. So the most important thing should be what have they actually done? And the answer is pretty simple. During the Trump administration, the legislature, very little. Yeah. During the Biden administration, very little. So during the Trump administration, they passed the tax cuts for the rich, which was terrible, which was horrible, but it didn't really fundamentally change a whole lot. Because the issue is, our country is already on course to be in a situation where if nothing is done in Congress, then the rich will continue to get richer, the poor will get poorer because their wages will not keep up with inflation, wages will remain stagnant, which they have for like the last two, three decades, and the power dynamics, the power shifting will continue to shift in favor of elites. Which means that moderates, so-called moderate right-wingers, and so-called moderate Democrats end up creating the same result. Now, I'm not saying that they're advocating for the same things. And you might even argue that if we had more Democrats to overrule people like, like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, that we might actually have some fairly decent changes. Like if the, if the, um, if the, uh, the human infrastructure bill had passed, that that would have actually represented a fundamental change. Perhaps that is true, but it still didn't happen. 
So the point that I'm trying to make here is that we spend so much time scared of extremists. We also need to recognize that the thing that has caused way more damage has been inaction. And that inaction is primarily driven by so-called moderates. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think those are like, I think those are really interesting points. And I think they're definitely true of like Washington, like partially yeah. because like, to your point, you know, the examples you cited from the Trump administration, Republicans haven't been legislating. Yeah. For the most part, that's not really what they're interested in doing. That's not really what they do. Right. Their like main thing that they do is, well, the main thing that they do about legislation is obstruct it. Right. Yeah. Like the filibuster is their best friend and it's their biggest tool because, you know, it just enables them to do very little. And so, like, even if they bring a bill through Congress, if they're in power, if the Democrats stop it, it's like it's not that big of a deal because for the past yeah. 20 years, two and a half Democrat Democratic presidents. Right. Their main goal has been to stop them from getting anything done. Yeah. Like, and so, like, they, to your point, like, the status quo is already so f favorable to their constituents and yeah. to them. And when I say constituents, I don't mean the, their voters. Yeah. I mean they're the people that fund them. The right? donors. Not, yeah, the donors, exactly. Um, it's been so beneficial to them that all they have to do is keep things from progressing, from improving, and their job is done. They've got the easiest fucking job in the world. <laughs> Basically, yeah. don't show up to the office. Mark Rubio's got the idea. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, they have been doing a couple of things, though. <clears throat> One, part of their goal has been to, you know, exercise, like, more uh, control over, like, not, not necessarily Republicans in Washington, but, like, Republican you know, extremists, right, has been to exercise more control in our lives, right? And so, like, they've been putting judges on the bench to control the judiciary. They've been taking over, focusing on state legislatures to make sure yeah. that they can control things there because they've realized that they don't have to legislate at the federal level. They can legislate at the state level and do, accomplish, you know, their other statewide things, and then all they have to do at the federal level is block legislation and do tax cuts. And then everybody's yeah. the, all their people are happy. Yeah. Um, and then on the on, on the you know judge side on the federal bench, that like in infiltrating the judiciary, the federal judiciary is one of the main ways that they can prevent laws uh, that are seemingly unconstitutional from getting overturned at the state level, so that it insulates state control from federal oversight, right? So like that's like a big risk that they've been that they've been doing as well. So like even though they haven't been legislating, um, and and been taking these rather moderate opinions, that doesn't mean that they can't enact the extremist wings of the party can't enact in extremism, which is part of like, which is I think part of this in the insidious part of this um, dynamic that we're kind of describing is that like. <sighs> the moderates just sit back and do nothing and the world yeah. burns and yeah. the extremists are able to like, you know, have their little 
you know, crazy parties and still continue to gain influence and gain power. And that connects to my last point, which is actually on rhetoric. To your point, like, yeah, in terms of legislation, not very, not a super strong record. In terms of rhetoric, the reason why that's important is because it creates true believers. Yeah. It creates Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt yeah. Gates and, you know, Madison Cawthorn and Josh Hawley and, you know, yeah. All of these folks in in the midterm election, there will be 36 self-identified QAnon supporters running for Congress. God. So the the challenge of rhetoric is that it creates true believers. Yeah. And they, they're like the decks is totally stacked in their favor. To your point, they do nothing. They win. They do something at the state level. It's judiciary. They still win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, honestly, they try to do something. They fail at doing something. They still win. Yeah. Because at least nothing changed. Yeah. And also, what's beautiful about it is when they try to do something in terms of culture issues, either they, they succeed and their base loves them, or they fail and they turn their base's ire towards Democrats. Yeah, very effectively. Very yeah. effectively. So, like, so I'm going to say something that some of y'all might disagree with, but I actually do think this. I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert are honest actors. Yeah. Some of y'all might disagree with that, I actually think that they're honest actors. When I say that, I mean, I think that they truly believe everything they say. I think that in their heart of hearts, they believe that their version of America is the best version of America and that in their minds, they're actual crusading heroes. Yeah. I truly do believe that they believe in all of the shit that they say. And that is one of the biggest reasons why they're not the problem. Now, they, if they were, if there are more of them in Congress, then that would be a problem. And we need to try to do everything we can to make yeah. sure that there aren't more of them in Congress. But at the end of the day, if we allow the media narrative to be, well, there are good Republicans and there are bad Republicans, then we are missing the forest through the trees. All right. Mm -hmm. Because... Yeah. Yeah. You know, we on the pod, we usually like we talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, usually in the context of the asshat segment or the Dershowitz bag segment, because that the focus of that is entertainment. They're right? jokes. They're jokes. <laughs> They're complete jokes. They are jokes. Most of the time, we actually don't even talk about them that much in our main segments because they're just not that important. And the more we treat them like they're important, it's not just that we're legitimizing them, but it's that. We're not paying attention to all of the ways in which Mitch McConnell, in which Kevin McCarthy are systematically trying to fuck us over. Mm. And they're not necessarily fucking us over by making sure things get passed. They're fucking us over by making sure things don't get passed. And now it's time for us to end our show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight this week is that I officially got declared 
cancer-free. So blood work is back. CT scan is back. The doctor said there's nothing there. Now, I do... I am going to have to go in for regular checkups. There's a 15% chance in the next two years it'll come back. So I do need to do checkups every three months. But right now, I am cancer-free. And life is good. So fucking awesome, dude. That's so, so exciting. Yeah. What about you, Mike? What's your highlight? How can I pass the... How can I How can I follow that? <laughs> oh, I, I had a nice weekend. Um, it was nice. <laughs> well, well, I didn't I mean, even have any life-changing news. Well, hold on. You're cancer-free too right now, right? That's true. Yeah. My highlight. <laughs> my perennial highlight. <laughs> perpetual highlight. <laughs> is being cancer-free. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it's a great feeling, it's ain't it, bro? Ni- it feels nice. <laughs> you know, you don't think about how nice it is. <laughs> yeah. Until it's really nice. <laughs> and so with that, we'll thank our patrons, the wonderful people that make this show possible and successful. So thank you to Tobias Janssen, Kyle Chaska, Fade Out Scoop, Jerry DeViller, and Taylor Bloom for being our wonderful patrons. And to you, listener, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.